Love Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Faces of TBI podcast series, the number one podcast for brain injury and concussion resources. I am Amy Zalmer, founder of FacesofTBI.com and your host. Today, I'm going to be chatting with Barbara Rubin about her book, More Than You Can See. This episode is brought to you by Integrated Brain Centers. Located in Denver, Colorado, Dr. Shane Stedman and Perry Maynard are experts in functional neurology and treat complex concussion cases from around the country. With over 20 years of combined experience, they're leaders in helping patients who are suffering from post-concussion symptoms, including dizziness, vertigo, headaches, dysautonomia, and more. For your free consultation, you can find them online at integratedbraincenters.com. Hello, I am Amy Zalmer, and you're listening to Faces of TBI, a podcast series for survivors by survivors, raising awareness about traumatic brain injury one podcast at a time. Those of you who might not know who I am, I am a TBI survivor from a fall on the ice in February of 2014. I'm a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post, Drive Global, and the Goodman Project, and I'm author of Life with a Traumatic Brain Injury, Finding the Road Back to Normal, available on Amazon. Additionally, I'm editor-in-chief of the Brain Health Magazine, and you can get a free digital subscription at thebrainhealthmagazine.com. I also invite you to join my private Facebook group, Amy's TBI Tribe, to connect with other survivors, caregivers, and loved ones. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zelmer. Today, my guest is Barbara Rubin, and she writes the story in Rage as both mother and advocate for her injured daughter, Jen. Emotionally invested in this narrative, she had the advantage to write in raw detail about the triumphs and heartbreaks to follow her main character. She witnessed firsthand the battles that come when a person is the most vulnerable, but also the gift of human kindness and the difference it can make in another person's life. She lived the story it was hers to tell. Barbara hopes that her journey, lived through her daughter's injury, will help others understand the lessons that can be learned from tolerance and gives hope to families whose path has also been darkened by tragedy. Welcome to the podcast, Barbara. So happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. So, Barbara, um, let's maybe begin with telling us a little bit about what happened with Jen, your daughter. Um, What is her brain injury story? Okay, in 1991, uh, so this is a while ago, She was 17 years old and was in a horrific car accident, Uh, suffered a traumatic brain injury. She was in a coma for several days. Um, Death loomed over her. And then slowly she started to emerge from this deep coma. And when that happened, we... Uh, discovered that one of her disabilities, the rather profound one, was that she lacked any method of communication. Um, So that made it hard to even understand 
how she was coming out of this coma, you know, because some of the typical questions are, you know, you know, squeeze my hand or blink your eyes. And she couldn't understand that. So it was um, a lot of guessing as to what level of consciousness she was at for quite a long while. And that persisted for many weeks. Um, But after um, she got out of the ICU, we moved her to a rehab facility. And unfortunately, like so many TBI survivors, she had to learn all of her basic life skills. Mm. But she didn't have communication. So that's where the interesting part of the story comes about is how do you go about doing this when the person doesn't understand you? Yeah. And it could, you know, we had to be very creative. And um, that kind of gets to what a lot of the story is about, what we did, and then how Jen was still able to connect with people because of her quirky personality. She was fun and did silly things. And she really captured people's hearts uh, in the process. So that's what my story's about. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of the communication, um, so in her case, she wasn't able to understand what you guys were saying to her, correct? Correct. But she also couldn't say things to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So did they deem that like a form of aphasia? It was aphasia, but the people that worked with her, the experts in the field of speech-language pathology, had never had a person who had, you know, where they couldn't understand and they couldn't verbalize anything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a global aphasia. So we were in uncharted territories at this particular time. Maybe there's more out there today about this kind of um, disability. But at the time, the people who were working with her had never had a case like this. Yeah. And, yeah, and I mean, as her parents, 90... we start... Sorry. sorry go ahead. <clears throat> back in 91, I mean, they just barely knew anything about brain injury as well, right? Let alone um, this extreme form of aphasia. Um, yeah, that had to have been incredibly challenging, you know, both she couldn't communicate with you nor understand you. Um, typically it's one or the other, but to have both of them, I, yeah, I can see where that would just be incredibly challenging. Um, and was she able to um, recover some of that communication ability? Um, she kind of developed her own little system. Um, <laughs> you know, the way she was great with facial expressions. Mm. Um, I mean, she could make sounds. So you knew when she was happy, she was a very excitable happy. You knew when she was mad or angry, she was very loud. And the face gave every indication of to, you know, 
how angry she was. So she used other means to really let us know what was going on with her. But she couldn't tell you, hey, I would, you know, really prefer to wear this rather than that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she couldn't have a conversation with her. So that made it hard. And it also required me to be with her. I was with her every day for a year and a half because people didn't know how to work with her. And when we moved her to yet a different facility, she's at one facility for a while, it's more of an acute care. And then she goes into the group home situation. I had to teach the staff how to work with her. How do you get her to do anything? How do you know what she wants? Um, You know, they were totally in the dark how to handle this kind of client. Yeah, and I can imagine the challenges with that. Um, So, you know, this is 91. Like I said, they, they barely understood brain injury back then. I mean, we barely understand it now and we, and we've come leaps and bounds in the last 30 years. Um, But, you know, what, what were some of the therapies that she had, if any, you know, what did they do to try to help her outside of just the communication issues? Well, At the first facility, which was a great find for us, it was perfect for our family and for Jen, they had every kind of therapy imaginable. Um, They had a massage therapist that came and worked on the tight limbs, you know, Jen's right arm and hand and her right leg, you know, were stiff, you know, from the brain injury. Um, they had recreation therapy. They had, you know, the typical uh, physical therapy. They had uh, speech therapy. Um, they did things with music to try to connect with people because there was actually one client at the facility who couldn't talk but could sing. And so, you know, that was a way to connect with him. So they tried so many different things. They had computer programs they uh, tried to work with to correct the eye issue that she had because one where the impact was on the right side, it broke the bones around her eye and that eye was skewed and they thought that she had double vision and were trying to work to correct that. I don't know that anything they did corrected that. I think maybe Jennifer kind of figured out a way on her own to correct it. Uh, And she wasn't terribly compliant with some of the things that they wanted to do. But, you know, they had everything imaginable. And we were so fortunate to have this facility, to have all these options, to have all these things, you know, to try. Now, after that facility, when we moved her to the group home, um, you know, then it became more specific to her and teaching her things with the lack of communication. And what we found was there were often 
just one little step that she was missing from being able to do a certain task. And if we could figure out what that step was, she might be able to learn that task. And so it it took a lot of thinking and researching, and I went to uh, conferences. I, you know, tried to contact all the experts in the field that I could to find out how to approach helping her to rebuild a life. And, you know, a lot of that is laid out in the book. It was complicated. It was rewarding. It was frustrating. All of it. And was Amy at, at early in her recovery, or sorry, Amy, your other daughter, um, was Jen early in, your reco- in her recovery, was she able to walk and do other tasks? Um, I, you know, like, I, I, you know, the, the communication issues are one thing, right? But was she able to have some independence in, like, walking um, or did that come later? Okay, that came at the first facility. Um, she didn't know how to walk. She didn't know mm-hmm. how to sit up. She didn't know how to eat. She didn't know how to do anything. I describe her as kind of a rag doll that they yeah. had in a wheelchair uh, with a tray table in front to hold her in place. Um, so... You know, they PT started working with her on the walking. But while they're working on trying to, you know, teach her how to sit upright and, you know, correct the problems that are going on with her right leg and foot because that right foot was wanting to drop you know, one of the terms that is often used is drop foot with TBI. Mm-hmm. You've been in the hospital too long and the foot drops. So we were battling those kind of things. But she did learn to walk. She had a noticeable limp. Uh, PT tried everything to correct and get rid of that limp. But after a point, Jen was too determined to be independent and wanted to walk <laughs> and didn't want to be held back. And so they didn't achieve that goal of eliminating the limp. But one of the first things they worked on, you know, before the walking even, was getting her to use her feet to uh, you know, move her wheelchair. And she became so skilled at moving that wheelchair, incredible to watch her maneuver her way uh, around the corridors, you know, unbelievable. And then when she started walking, yeah, you know, that was one of the things that when she was out in public, I think confused people was because she was so mobile Mm -hmm. that they didn't see her as somebody with a disability. And therefore didn't understand if her behaviors didn't fall in line with the norm. And if we took her someplace in the wheelchair, there was more empathy and understanding. 
Mm-hmm. But if she was walking around, people didn't recognize what was going on with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you you share in your book a little bit. So your other daughter is Amy. Um, right. It's easy for me to remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you share a little bit about um, when she first started dating her 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 soon to be husband, um, and you know she was she was concerned what he was going to think, Jen, right? Because um, she wasn't able to communicate. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I thought that was a really touching story. Right, um, you know, Amy was very forthright with people when they would ask her, especially when she went away to college in our home town when this happened Amy was 13 at the time um, everybody knew in the town and they understood that her sister you know was in this accident and there was a problem but when she went away to college she you know people asked her do you have any siblings she was very forthright and saying yes I do you know she has had a traumatic brain injury and she has a lot of disabilities But now when she is starting to get serious with this new young man in her life and she's going to introduce him to her sister, she's talked about her sister, you know, right from the get-go. And her, this young man's name was Jeff. And he made an assumption based on what he knew from concussions. He played sports. He knew many of his friends who had a concussion. You know, okay, they have headaches, they have dizziness, but, you know, after a few weeks, they're okay. And that's kind of what he was thinking. And Amy was like, that's not the case, Jeff. You haven't seen something like this. And her words were, it's like, there is a stranger walking around in my daughter, in my sister's body. She's totally different. And, you know, fortunately, you know, Jeff was very open to meeting, you know, Amy's sister. And when he met her the first time, he saw that she was excitable. She was so happy to see Amy. They were at a restaurant, her favorite thing to do, eating. Um, (laughs) So, you know, she was a little louder than usual. But Jen was like, I was used to being around loud people. So, you know, this didn't bother me. And, hey, you can see she was so happy. How can you be upset about somebody being so happy? And, you know, so he was totally fine with everything, which was wonderful. And, you know, continue to always be, because they do end up getting married. And, you know, he was always very welcoming and kind and uh, gracious to Amy's sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was just a very touching, touching story. Um, yeah, and they, they, like you said, they eventually became married and, um you have some pictures throughout your book and there's a picture at their wedding in the book and Amy looks so happy. I love that picture. 
We were all so happy. That was that was an amazing and wonderful day. And you know, when somebody in your family has had, you know, an illness or an accident or something that has compromised their health or their well-being, and you have a happy occasion like that to celebrate and you're all there, wonderful. Mm-hmm. And so Amy continued to live in a group home, correct? No, Jennifer. Sorry. Jennifer, yes. It doesn't my <laughs> name. Okay. Uh, Jen continued to live in a group home. Um, this was the perfect placement for her. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, many people feel they want to take care of the loved one themselves. They think you are, that there's something bad yeah. associated with letting other people help you. And nothing could have been further from the truth for us, at least. I can't speak for everybody. Right, but right. we would not have been able to give Jen the life she had had we tried to do everything ourselves. Because she really did require 24-hour-a-day watching and service. And ours was, you know going to be a very isolating situation for her if we had kept her at home and just taken her in to get her, you know, OT or PT or whatever services that she was requiring. Uh, Other than that, in taking her out occasionally, it wasn't going to be filled with the people that she had at the group home because there were six clients there and there were about that many a staff there at any given time other than overnight when everybody was sleeping. Uh, there was still staff there, but only one. But during the day, you constantly had staff coming and going. You had the clients coming and going. You had their family members. Uh, it was a busy house, and there was always something going on. That we couldn't have given her. And then the true heart of the story is when she has caregivers who bring her home and introduce her to their families and expand her whole network of support and friends. And, you know, she was so well connected, which is not, would not have been the case if we had kept her at home. And, a large support system for somebody, you know, that severely disabled is so important. Um, yeah. Because if if it's just, you know, my husband Mark and I that are there for her and Amy we knew was, you know, going to develop a life of her own, and sure she would include her sister. But again, Amy would be raising a family, would be going off to work, And that would make for a lot of isolation for Jen. Mm -hmm. And the group home was, I consider, perfect for everybody. It was the best for Jen. It was the best for Mark and I and for Amy. And 
I especially could really focus on developing programs for Jen and handling various court battles that are part of the story also that are in Mm, the book. Right. Uh, And handling insurance issues and all that. I could do all that because, you know, I had caregivers that I had trained and I trusted that could, you know, help carry the burden. You know, I'm so glad that we're talking about this because I think this is a really important point. Um, You know, I understand wanting to keep your loved one at home and take care of them. Um, But I also see such benefit in having them in a group home. Like you said, it's a group home. There's only six people there. It's not like a nursing home, right? Totally different environment. And I have visited quite a few group homes across the country. um, And they're just so happy, the majority of them, right? They're just so happy. And they do outings and they have activities and they play games and they watch movies. I mean, they're just... They're, they're, um, they're, they're just thriving, I guess is a good word. Um, and it takes such a burden off of the parents. And, you know, especially if you're beginning to age, like I have one TBI friend, her mom is 80 and she still lives with her mom and her mom takes care of her. And it's like, gosh, you know, she's 80. That's, that's, that's a lot of work for someone who's aging. Um, and other families that might have kids at home. I mean, there's just, there's so many variables. And I just want people to know, like, it's okay to put them in a group home. And you can still be very actively involved in their life and in their care, obviously. Um, but I think it just gives each of you such an opportunity. It gives the, the survivor, the opportunity to have other friends and, and other people in their life. And it gives you that opportunity. Like you said, you were dealing with legal battles and, and you know, there's all the health insurance battles that people have to go through as well. Um, so it gave you that time to be able to handle that part of the work as well. So I, I just think this is such an important point that you've brought up. And I'm glad that you had such a wonderful experience with it. And I think that it is maybe one of the most important points in the book that, you know, you're, it is okay. I like the way you said that. It is okay to have help and not just to bring it in, but to, you know, have the person be in an environment where they can have friends. And, you know, in this group home, uh, many of the clients had work that they went to every day, um, which was another way for them to be engaged with the community and feel like they had self-worth and all that. And that's so hard to do if you're trying to keep them at home and it's draining your energy and, you know, you don't know where to find all these resources. Um, I think you know, I know of one client who was doing, his mother had taken care of him for several years after his TBI, and it just got to be too much. She was getting burned out. And so she brought him to the group home. 
And this guy started really thriving. He started doing things he didn't do before. He was social. Uh, he was better, you know, had better behaviors. He, she thought, you know what? He's so good now. I'm going to take him back home. She brought him back home, and that did not go so well. Because once again, mm. he was isolated. He didn't have the same friends and the activities. And a few months later, she had to bring him back and admit that it, it had been a mistake because she couldn't do it all. And, you know, she wasn't doing him any favors by trying to do everything herself. And, you know, the point of the aging parents, that was something that, although Mark and I were not in any way old at the time that this happened, Mm-hmm. You still have to think long term. Yeah. And, you know, you want a support system to be there in case something happens to you guys. Yeah. And, you know, that was just really critical to us. I mean, we, that was so much in our thoughts that Mark and I and our other daughter, Amy, would never go on a plane together. So that yeah. We, one of us would be left to take over Jen's care. But even so, like I said, you, you want, I, and it, it was just important that Jen have more than just the three of us um, as yeah. a support system. And the other thing was, you know, she was a teenager when this happened. But then, you know, throughout the story, she's this young adult. And it was important to me to match caregivers that were similar in age. So it, for all appearances, she was out with friends. She was out with her peers. And that was really an important element to me because I wanted her to have as normal a life as possible. And, you know, that was, you know, an, in, an independent life from Mark and I, you know, and this was having this fan base, these families that she was involved with. And I have to say that, you know, that was my goal. And I really think I I accomplished it. I was really so pleasantly surprised by how well that worked out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really encouraging um, for any caregivers listening in particular, um, you know, just really a really key takeaway here and something I don't believe we've really ever talked about before on my podcast. <clears throat> so I'm really glad um, that we have the opportunity to talk about that. Barbara, we're just about out of time. So I want to make sure that listeners know how to find your book and get in touch with you um, in the show notes. So wherever you're listening to this podcast, um, we do have the clickable link to your website, which is barbarubinauthor.com. And I do have the link to your book on Amazon as well. Um, so anything else you want to add to that, want people to know um, as far as getting in touch with you or your book? Um, well, I, you know, the, the book is available at all retailers, you know, most bookstores, you would have to order it, but you can order it from mm-hmm. your favorite local bookstore. 
which we always try to promote the local book bookstore. Uh, but it certainly is available online at you know those retailers as well. And if you come on my website, you know you can link into my Instagram and see more pictures. And I keep adding pictures uh, as time goes on. I don't like to flood them all out there at once, <laughs> but there, uh, you know, there are other pictures. And um, you know, there are also, you know. It, I think it's a great book for book clubs because there are right. a lot of questions and important points that come to you know can be discussed, and there is a way to connect with me and request um, questions to bring up at a book club. And I think, in particular, like a caregiver support group, um, I think this would be a great book um, specifically Absolutely. for a caregiver. Yeah. Well, Barbara, thank you so very much for being here today. This has been a very wonderful conversation. Um, I appreciate you really openly sharing, you know, about putting her in the group home and how it was such a positive experience. So thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for having me. And again, we have the link in the show notes, wherever you're listening to her website and as well as the book on um, Amazon. And just another big thank you to our sponsor. You can find them online at integratedbraincenters.com. And you can also find previous episodes of this podcast on most streaming platforms, such as iTunes, or directly at facesoftbi.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Amy Zellmer. And please join Amy's TBI Tribe on Facebook. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it for just $5 a month with a Patreon membership, patreon.com slash Zalmer. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being a part of my journey. Have a great day, everyone, and I will see you in the next episode.